Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Anderson Cooper. Now, scientists tell us that if our planet warms more than 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 1.5 degrees Celsius, we are facing massive and dangerous tipping points, flooded coastal cities, island nations underwater, and the destruction of coral reefs. So tonight, CNN is dedicating an entire night to the climate emergency and how the top 10 Democratic presidential candidates plan to address this urgent threat. We're coming to you, of course, tonight, just as Hurricane Dorian, the strongest storm anywhere on the planet this year, has decimated parts of the Bahamas and is threatening the East Coast. Joining me right now on stage, former Vice President Joe Biden. So... Welcome. We're going to have an audience question in a minute. I just want to just some broad strokes here. Your climate plan calls for zero net zero emissions by the year 2050. Um, there's a lot of policymakers out there who say, look, it's got to be done faster. They're talking 10, 12 years. Your climate change plan uh, talks about spending 1.7 trillion. There's other candidates out there who are talking about spending 16 trillion. Is your plan aggressive enough? I guess that's the question. People yes, have. I think it is aggressive enough, and it's gotten good reviews from most of the environmental community. It's been rated very highly, and uh, I think that, uh, that it is aggressive enough. But look, science and technology are going to change, and as it changes, we learn more, we can do more. I mean, I'd love to do it by 2030. I'd love to do it by 2035 in terms of net zero emissions. But I have no, no scientist who says that's able to be done right now. But one thing we have to do, we have to start quickly. We have to start and do things that we know can be done immediately and progress from there and just keep moving. There's a lot we have to do by 2030 just to set in place a set of institutional structures that mean you can't turn it around like this president has done the few things that were, in fact, in place. Uh, I want to go to the audience. Uh, I want you to meet uh, Katie Etter from uh, Shorewood, Wisconsin. She's hey, Katie. 19 years old. She's the executive director of Future Coalition, which is helping to organize a youth-led global strike later this month to draw attention to the climate crisis. Katie? Good for Welcome. you, Katie. Hi, good evening. Uh, my question for you is, older generations have continued to fail our generation by repeatedly choosing money and power over our lives and our futures. So how can we trust you to put us, the future, but over the wants of large corporations and wealthy individuals. Because I've never done it. I've never made that choice my whole career. Simple. 
I mean, look, uh, I, uh, I got involved back in 1986. I introduced a, a climate change plan that PolitiFact said was a game changer. I've been involved in everything from making sure we uh, go with uh, back in, 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 in the 90s. I mean, everything I've done has been done to take on the polluters and take on those who are, in fact, decimating our, our, our environment. I mean, it's been my career. Would you support uh, a carbon tax? Other ca- some other candidates said they would. Yeah, no, I, I, I would. But here, here's what we have to do. Look, the bottom line of this is what we have to do is we have to understand that you need to be able to bring people and countries and interests together to get anything done. You can have the plans are great, but executing on those plans is a very different thing. We make up, it is the existential threat of not this generation, but the whole world, the existential threat that exists. We don't move on it, number one. You said this is an existential threat. It is an existential threat. There is no doubt about that. And the fact of the matter is that we make up 15% of the problem. The rest of the world makes up 80%, 85% of the problem. If we did everything perfectly, everything, and we must and should in order to get other countries to move, we still have to get the rest of the world to come along. And the fact of the matter is we have to up the ante considerably. And I have great experience in leading coalitions, both at home and internationally. And I think I can do that better than anybody who, uh, no matter what their plans. Well, that's one of the things that President Trump has said about the climate change accord. Uh, the, The agreement is that other countries, even if we do everything right, other countries are not going to be following it, and therefore it's not worth being well, part of Well, he's dead wrong across the board on basically everything, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not being facetious. Look, you know, we, we got to start choosing science over, uh, over, over fantasy here. The fact of the matter is that what he did by removing the United States as the leader of the Paris Climate Accord, he, in fact, dissipated the enthusiasm across the board. The rest of the countries are saying, whoa, wait a minute. Why are we engaged in this if, if the United States is stepping down? We're in a position where when we put that together, and I was the one that suggested to the president, President Obama, I don't want to confuse presidents here, President Obama, that China would be part of this effort when I came back after a long meeting with Xi Jinping in Beijing. And he, and he was. But here's the deal. The deal is now what's happened is that as we have pulled out, there is no leadership. There is no leadership. I know almost every one of these world leaders. If I were if I'd been president today, I would have at the G7 made sure this became the topic. There would be no empty chair. I would be pulling the G7 together. I would be down with the president of Brazil saying enough is enough. This is what we're going to do. And this is what's going to happen if you don't do it. This is to bring the world together. Folks, look. This is such an urgent problem. We need to be able, the first thing I do as president of the United States is call a meeting of all the nations who signed on to the court in Washington, D.C. to up the ante because we have learned so much just in the last three years about the science of what has to happen quicker. And the world knows it. And we should be in a position where we generate support around the rest of the world and those who don't do their part don't participate, then, in fact, they face consequences. They face consequences. I want to ask you more about that in a minute. I want to introduce you to uh, Isaac Larkin. He's a Ph.D. candidate at Northwestern University studying synthetic biology, which, honestly, I don't really even know what that is. It's awesome. Uh, He currently supports Senator Bernie Sanders, but you could change his mind tonight. Who knows? Isaac? It doesn't look like I'd do that. (laughs) Senator Biden, I'm 27 years old. Half of all greenhouse gas emissions 
ever generated by the entire history of human civilization have been released in my lifetime. This despite the now well-documented fact that 40 years ago, scientists at Exxon and Shell knew and reported to their bosses that burning fossil fuels was warming the planet and would destabilize the climate. Fossil fuel corporations, their executives, their trade and industry organizations, and their think tank front groups have waged a decades-long campaign of lying to the public about the science, and it has brought us to a crisis that threatens the entire human race. Now, I know that you signed the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, but I have to ask, how can we trust you to hold these corporations and executives accountable for their crimes against humanity when we know that tomorrow you are holding high-dollar fundraiser hosted by Andrew Goldman, a fossil fuel executive? He's not a fossil fuel executive, I'm told. He, he, he is not a fossil fuel executive. And the fact of the matter is that uh, what we talk about is what are we going to do about those corporations? What have we done? And along, everywhere along the way, for example, I've argued and we've and pushed for us suing those executives who are engaged in pollution, those companies who are engaged in pollution. I've never walked away from that. I've also been one of those people who, when I was chairman of the, of the Foreign Relations Committee, got involved in plans to be able to join people together in order to take on these corporate interests. When back in 1986, they entered one of the first climate uh, uh, plans that, that existed. PolitiFact said it was a game changer. I've been engaged in this from the beginning. Let, let, me, let me just inform our audience about some of the details that, that Aaron was talking about, because I think it's important. I think a lot of people don't know about the studies that you cited. 2017, there was a Harvard study that examined both public and private communications from ExxonMobil. The study showed that for 40 years, while the company publicly were raising doubts about climate change, the dangers of it, internally, ExxonMobil scientists and executives were acknowledging the threat to the planet. There was a 2018, there was a Dutch news organization which uncovered internal communications from Royal Dutch Shell showing they understood the impacts of climate change and the company's contribution to it all the way back to the 80s. Uh, let me just point out uh, that in response to Harvard, Exxon said, our statements have been consistent with our understanding of climate science. Shell said, quote, its position on climate change has been a matter of public record for decades. We strongly support the Paris Agreement on climate change. But Isaac's question is, will you hold fossil fuel corporations and executives who've lied to the public accountable. Yes. And by the way, just like we did the tobacco industry that lied to the public, just like we did the opioid so industry. So how do you do that? Well, the way you do that is you try to change the law. You go after them. You try to change the law. To, to and, his and, other question, though, about this fundraiser, uh, there is a fundraiser tomorrow night. It's given by a guy named Andrew Goldman. He's, uh, he does hedge funds and stuff, but he also has a company called Western LNG. And their biggest project, which I think was announced in like 2018, is a floating liquefied uh, facility for natural gas. It's off the coast of British Columbia, and it's going to provide Canadian gas to parts of, uh, of northern Asia. So what Andrew is saying is, if you're going to a fundraiser that's given in part by this guy who has a company that is uh, pulling up natural gas, are you the right guy to go after this? Well, I didn't realize he does that. I was told, if you look at the SEC filings, he's not listed as one of those executives. That's what we look at. The SEC filings. Who are those executives? I've kept that pledge. Period. So is that, are you going to look at that fundraiser tomorrow night? Or I'm going to look you... at what you just told me and find out if that's accurate. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think it's pretty accurate. Uh, Aaron, uh, I called you, uh, Isaac, I called you Aaron. I apologize. Isaac, thank you for your question. Um, and I apologize for taking up so much time, but I thought it was important to give some, uh, some context. Um, I want to go to Francine Strike. By the way, every one of my fundraisers from the beginning are open to the press. 
presses for every. There's nothing that's done behind closed doors. Every single fundraiser I've had. You ever regret that? No, not at all. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, this is Francine Strike, a community and union organizer from Brooklyn. Francine, welcome. Right. Hi. So my 24-year-old daughter Jessie and her friend Jacob were killed in Superstorm Sandy by falling trees. Uh, And many others were killed that night by rising waters. Since then, there have been worldwide superstorms, severe weather impacting hundreds, thousands. You know, we see an example of that tonight. Uh, What specific steps, and I mean specific, would you take? You You said something before, but what specific steps would you take in your first year regarding policies, funding, uh, safe communities, jobs that would help mitigate the um, impact of climate change in your first year? And then what would you want to have accomplished at the end of your first term if elected? Well, look, first of all, we have to do is go back and turn back all the changes that, in fact, the president has made from cafe standards to moving in a direction that we, in fact, deal with providing people who get displaced opportunities to have jobs by sending them back to school, by doing continuing education, whole range of things. I would see to it immediately moving toward, you know, we we are in fact in a position now that if in fact we dealt with mitigation across the board, just what we did in the last in the last administration and before leading to a standard that we provide efficiency for appliances that saves Billions of gallons of gasoline. I mean, billions of uh, two point, I think it's two point three billion dollars worth of excuse me, five hundred billion dollars in savings and two point something billion metric tons of CO2 going in the air. We should do it across the board. I think we should. I propose we have five hundred thousand charging stations in the new green economy. We should own we should own the electric vehicle market. I think we should raise the cafe standards bring them back to where they were, which would have saved 12 billion gallons of, of oil to begin with, and go move beyond. I think we should be, in fact, doubling what we're doing immediately with regard to solar and wind. I would make sure that we, and I'd go, it goes on from there, but the bottom line is to set in place standards that cannot be walked away from when, in fact, the next president, yeah. if someone else comes along, does what Trump tries to do. How, you, you talk, and that's an important point. How do you, I mean, what can you do that President Obama couldn't to make sure that these things are not able to be reversed by, you know, executive fiat? The next- You're looking at it right now. These people right here. Look, it's a little bit like a whole lot of things that people didn't know before this guy became president until he started to take it away. And they started to take it away. And he said, whoa, wait a minute, man. Look what that's done. He's changed the cafe standards. We're not going to meet those standards. Well, that means boom. He's done this. It means bang. Everybody knows now, knows what he has done, and it's raised the ante significantly. No one can any longer. I remember when I introduced that bill back in 1986. I said, what the hell are you talking about, Biden? What's the crisis? Well, it wasn't. We didn't have Superstorm Sandy at the time. We didn't have all these things that are occurring that people now know and were predicted they would occur. We weren't losing species that, in fact, we find are not going to be able to. We're, we're not, they'll ne- never return. I mean, there's a whole range of things. Look what's happening right now in the Amazon. The Amazon is a natural carbon sink. It absorbs more car- CO2 in the air 
from the air than if we took every single automobile off the road in the United States of America. What's going on? Nothing. Nothing. We're talking about $2 million? We should be organizing the world, demanding the change. That's things, they're the things I have done internationally. We need a diplomat in chief as well to be able to put this together. That's in my wheelhouse. I've done that my whole career. Uh, I want to introduce you by video to uh, Sue Mitchell, a retired teacher from Grand Junction, Colorado. Uh, This is her question. Even though President Obama knew of the seriousness of the climate crisis back in 2008, he chose to spend his political capital on health care and then wasn't able to enact the kind of systemic change needed to prevent climate catastrophe. How will you prioritize climate change action if you become president? Well, first of all, in defense of President Obama, everything landed on his despot locus. We were heading toward, we had the greatest financial catastrophe in in the world short of a depression. Nothing ever had occurred like that before. It was just getting America out of a ditch We were in real, real trouble. He got the economy back on a footing and began a period of economic growth. He moved on on health care because he thought it was so important that it happened at the time. What from the beginning, he also moved to deal with uh, with with cafe standards. He pushed very hard. He's the reason why we have the, the the Paris Climate Accord. That's how we got it. No other president came close to doing anything like that. But there's much, much more that need be done. At the time that accord was signed, we talked about, well, we'll reach by 40 percent by this. And the fact is, we've learned a great deal more. The science is accumulating so rapidly that but this president pays no attention to it. So what are we doing? What's going on right now? I want to ask you about the, the Green New Deal. In your plan, you say that the Green New Deal is, quote, a crucial framework for meeting the climate challenges we face. You say it has two basic truths that we need to combat the climate crisis with what you say is ambition on an epic scale and that the environment and economy are, in your words, completely and totally connected. You're not saying that you support everything in the gr- original Green New Deal. Do you think it goes too far? Is it unrealistic, no, promising it, too much? No, it's not. But here, here's what it is. It doesn't have a lot of specifics. It doesn't have a lot of specifics about exactly what we'll do with regard to greenhouse gases. It doesn't have specifics about what programs are going to initiate to be able to deal with taking, getting a net zero emission. What programs are you going to move on? What are the things we should be doing? Where, is this, where should the focus be? It doesn't talk about the 85% of the rest of the world that is, in fact, we could do, we're not, we have to, but we could do everything perfectly well. Everything. And we're still going to have a catastrophe nationally, internationally and around the world, because 85 percent of the problem, 85 percent is the rest of the world. And so the idea, I think the Green New Deal deserves an enormous amount of credit for bringing this to a head in a way that it hasn't been before. It hasn't been. But the reason I don't know, I'm not opposed to the Green New Deal. What I did was what I thought beyond, at least in more detail, what the Green New Deal is calling for. How to do the things we we need to do, when they have to be done, how quickly we should move, how much we should invest, et cetera. And it's based on science. And look, I just just look at all the organizations the, that many of you belong to, how they rated my plan. On balance, has been B plus or beyond that by every one of these organizations. 
And so the idea that, no, you're shaking your head, no, but that's true. The fact of the matter is that where, 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 where are we? How, for, for you and your thinking, how much do you take into consideration, you know, jobs for folks in Ohio and Pennsylvania? And how much is, you know, thinking for seven generations out for the population of the world? It's all about seven generations out, but you've got to deal with what's going on with jobs. This is an enormous opportunity, an enormous opportunity. We can create over 10 million jobs that are making 25 bucks an hour. We're not talking about jobs you're going to get a minimum wage. We can do so much if we invest the kind of money. Well, for example, I call for immediately investing $400 billion in research and development now. And goes every, I mean, so the idea that we're not going to, look, what, I, what bothers me most about what's going on in the country today we're walking around with our heads down like, oh, what are we going to do? We're in such great trouble. This is the United States of America. There's not a damn thing we've not been able to accomplish once we set our mind to it. We have the best scientists in the world. And when we resolve what we're going to do, and because of all of you in the studio audience and all those organizations that I've been associated with, they've decided enough is enough is enough. We have to act. And so that's, I mean, I just am, we can create enormous opportunity in Pennsylvania, in Minnesota, in California, across the board. Think, just, just think what happens. If we are able to move in a direction that we have 500,000 charging stations for electric vehicles, what, what does that do? Well, that gives us a corner on the electric vehicle market. That will create thousands of good jobs in the automobile industry. We will own the market, own the market. And we will be, in in addition to that, transferring the technology that we come up with, more than like any other country in the world with our capacity, selling it to the rest of the world. We'll be creating jobs. Mm. And I I just, the idea that, that, now the one thing you do have to do, uh, in in, in my view, some people are going to be displaced. And they're going to more people are some people in some industries are going to be more displaced than others. And you can't just say, well, what we're going to do is automatically you're going to all of a sudden make solar panels or because, you know, we when, when you look at fortune, they say they're the two biggest job creators coming down the road, solar and uh, and uh, and wind. Well, look, look what happened. To our administration, we cut by an enormous amount of uh, an enormous percentage, the efficiency of being able to generate wind and solar energy. And we can do more than that. It's about what we can generate if we set our minds to it. Uh, But we walk around like, oh, man, I don't know. What are we going to do? This is terrible. We're going to have more questions in just a moment, more with Vice President coming up. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome back to CNN Climate Crisis Town Hall. I want to introduce you to Barbara uh, Jarmaska. Did I have it right? Good. Hey, Barbara. Uh, a retired business owner from Montoursville, Pennsylvania. Barbara? Good evening, Mr. Vice President. I live in rural Pennsylvania in the bullseye of the Marcellus Shale. Currently, the county I live in is home to 1,600-plus permitted fracked gas wells. I have witnessed firsthand the tragic and appalling destruction of our beautiful forests and Pennsylvania wilds. 
Sadly, our Democratic governor is all in for fracked gas. As president, what can you do to change the direction of the catastrophic climate change policies and future plans at the state level. And, and I just want to point out to our viewers, the, the uh, Marcellus Shale is a, a rock formation underground. It's enormous. It's approximately two thirds of Pennsylvania, as well as parts of New York, Ohio and West Virginia and Maryland is the largest natural gas field in the U.S. I know that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was for. No, 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 no. I, I, I thought you were <laughs> no, telling me. Thank you. I appreciate the help. Look, uh, number one, I think the way we deal with um, state lands is uh, we, we have less we have less uh, latitude what we say we can and cannot do. I've argued against uh, any more oil drilling or gas drilling on federal lands that we can and, uh, and, 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 and to stop that. I think we should, in fact, be looking at what exists now and making a judgment whether or not the, those, in fact, that are there, those wells that are there, whether or not they're dangerous, or whether or not they've already done the damage, and what we can do from there by trying to change the attitude of the members of the, of the governors of the various state and the state legislatures. Now, we could pass national legislation, but I don't think we'd get it done in terms of getting the votes to get it done to say all fracking that's going on now ends unless you can show there's some physical security need or worried about explosions, et cetera, which is a legitimate thing to worry about. But I would not allow any more. Also, I just want to point out in fairness to, uh, to the governor of Pennsylvania. He's stopped short. Uh, he, he's, he's moved to regulate and limit some fracking, stopped short of calling for a statewide ban. So just to be clear... Uh, you would not call for a ban statewide on fracking or uh, nationwide. You said uh, stop new oil and gas drilling on federal lands. Yes. Okay. And I would also go back and look at what's out there now to determine whether or not it is safe, physically safe. Mm-hmm. As it called earthquakes and the like. That's what I would do. Um, our next we question. Have the, there, there used to be an EPA. <laughs> and used, No, you think I'm kidding. It's almost not there now. But anyway. Uh, our, our next question is from Daniel Sweeney, a student at Columbia Law School. He said he voted for President Trump. He's now disillusioned with the Republican Party, plans to change parties and vote for a Democrat in the next election. Daniel, welcome. China is, curr- <laughs> <laughs> China is currently the largest emitter of CO2. How, if at all, would you try to get China to lower its emissions as president? I would make it real clear. That's why we have to bring around the rest of the world. We have to reconfigure what's going on. When we did the Paris Accord that they signed on to, it was agreed that we would constantly up the ante the nations would agree to contingent upon what the science dictated and the, pro- and the extent of the problem. It has to be, we have to up the ante, what's going on, number one. Number two, any nation that doesn't do that, for example, what China is doing, they're, they're exporting, they're exporting coal technology. They're building coal plants on their Belt and Road area. They're moving in a way that they're, they're, in fact, making the environment much, much worse. They, in fact, have increased, I think, four and a half percent. They have increased the emissions from China. And so there has to be a price that they pay if they do that. And that's why I would talk about dealing with how we deal with them in terms of tariffs relating to their products that are being sold. If, in fact, they are involved in continuing to export, export this this uh, um, uh, climate change that, that that's what they're doing. But you got to get the rest of the world in on the deal to do it. 
That's how you get it done. And that's why it's important for us to meet the standards we say we're going to meet. Because it went up two and a half percent in the United States. It increased emissions just in the last couple of years under this president. It leveled out about 17 and now it's up two and a half percent. And so we can't very you can't very well preach to the choir if, in fact, you can't sing. You know, I mean, we have to be able to demonstrate what we are prepared to do, what we will do, what we have done, and call the rest of the world to account. So let me, let me ask you about that, because you talk about exporting. The United States projected to, uh, to be a net energy exporter by next year, largely because of crude oil and natural gas. Should the U.S. ban fossil fuel exports, as some other candidates are calling for? Well, I think, the, I think we should, in fact, depending on what it is they're exporting for the, what, what they're replacing. Everything is incremental. Everything is incremental. For example, you talked earlier about transportation. I've been pushing really hard for mass transit and for rail. We can take millions of vehicles off the road if we had high-speed rail. I've been a champion of that for the last 25 years. We know the Carters where we could do that. It would literally take millions of vehicles off the road. But you have to have a rail system that makes people say, if I get on that rail, I will get there as fast as I would have gotten had I driven. And I can afford to do it relative to the cost of my driving. There's a direct correlation. This is something I spent the bulk of my career on trying to save Amtrak and a few other little things like transportation. But my point is that there are things that we can do now, now, that can begin to change the arc in a significant way. And as we, in fact, invest in the science and the technology and the changes that are available and will come to fruition, in fact, we can make it significantly better. Should it, will there be a point or would you like there to be a point? And if so, when that everybody drives an electric car or has to drive an electric car? Well, I think, look, that's going to be based upon whether or not we can make it economically feasible. And it is economically feasible because guess what? Everybody knows where the world's going. You're not just like, you know, we 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 set out the rules for what kind of plant, you know, coal burning plants. No one's going to build another coal burning. We've got to shut the ones down we have. But no one is going to build a new one. Guess what? They're not efficient relative to what else is available to be done. That's why people are going to move. And that's why it's going to create so many new jobs for us. We have to take the take combustion engine vehicles off the road as rapidly as we can. But that also could create a significant number of jobs and opportunities for people. Our uh, chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, is here. I know he has a question for you. Thank, Thank you, Anderson. Uh, Vice President Biden, as we keep one eye on Hurricane Dorian uh, tonight, it's safe to assume that uh, an awful lot of folks in the Carolina low country are thinking about life and safety and probably insurance uh, there were 14 separate billion-dollar storms or fires last year, total of 91 billion, and it just seems logical. Break enough leaves. Yeah, right, right. But it seems reasonable to assume that at some point, insurance companies are going to stop covering places that are vulnerable, even in fire regions, as you say, as well. Um, but if that happens, it could tank real estate values, and it could gut out property values and the tax base that so many communities depend on. So as president, how would you be honest with the American people when it comes to the dangers of this without feeding into this kind of an economic spiral? Just like I did at home. My state is three feet above sea level. Okay, three feet above sea level in the southern part of the state, the whole Delmarva Peninsula. And guess what? We know what's going to happen. 
if we don't make significant change. And so what we're telling people, don't build in these places here. But what about the people that are already there? The people who are already there are going to be in real trouble. They're going to be in real trouble because you're right. Eventually what's going to happen is you're going to have insurance companies come along and say, I can't I can't ensure that because the prospect that that is going to be blown away is overwhelming. And so we have to, you know, be in a position where when we build back, we don't build back to normal. We build back to what is necessary. And so there's a whole range of things that are going on now in terms of, you know, uh, anyway, I'm taking too long. Sorry. Uh, I want to introduce you to uh, John Cecil from uh, Phillipsburg, New Jersey. He's the vice president for stewardship at the New Jersey Audubon Society. John? John. Good evening, Mr. Biden. Um, Across the country and around the world, individuals, families, businesses, we're experiencing climate change, the effects of it now. In New Jersey, where I live, we've had unprecedented rain in the last 18 months. In the South, we see these storms coming through. And in the Western United States, the devastating fires. Um, So all of this is really disruptive to people, families, businesses. My question for you is a bit of a personal one. How has climate change affected you and your family? Where it's affected me and my family is I was raised in a little town called Claymont, Delaware. More oil refineries and Marcus Hook at that, and it, 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 it takes care of 10 million people. Prevailing winds are south and southeast. I remember when I was a kid getting up and going to school, the little Catholic high school, grade school I went to, and get in a car, and when my uncle would drive us up, it was the first misty day, turn on the windshield wiper, there'd be oil on the window. I don't know if that's why I have asthma, but I know that's one of the reasons why Delaware at one point was rated as having a disproportionately high number of cancer cases because of what was going on. That's why we pushed really hard to make sure that we, in fact, required mitigation to be taken on all of those plants, some of which we've shut down. And so it's affected my family in a way and my state in a way that's been real, more than it's affected Jersey, more than it's affected Jersey. And so I understand what's going on. But look at the Pine Barrens. you got a lot to worry about there in terms of fires and drought. But the flip of it is, look what's happened in the Midwest. We have a number of significant bases that relate, military bases that relate to our national security, that in fact were rendered almost useless, including, I I can't go into the great detail to to say it, but my, my, my point is, it, it significantly reduced our national security. Last thing I'll say, first thing that happened when the president, when President Obama and I were elected, we went over to what they call and some of your military women and men over to the tank in the, in the Pentagon, sat down and got the briefing on the greatest danger facing our security. You know what they told us it was? The military. Climate change. Climate change. The single greatest concern for war and disruption in the world, short of a nuclear exchange immediately. And so where are we? Look what happened in Darfur. What's Darfur all about? Darfur is all about the fact that the sub-Saharan desert, because of the change in climate, no longer had enough arable land. Look what's happening in Indonesia. They're talking about moving their capital because it's going to sink. What happens if you get 10, 12, 13, 15, 100 million people on the move? That causes wars. And so it's well beyond whether or not it affects me personally, which it does, and it did my family and still does, just like your families. This is personal. This person, every one of you probably have a story 
that can talk about what's happened to something you care greatly about, whether it's a species or it's your son or daughter coming down with cancer mm. because of it. So it, it, it but we can do something. We have to act now, now. Mr. Vice President, uh, or, uh, Isaac earlier mentioned that the fundraiser, uh, I do want to clarify, uh, Andrew Goldman, uh, the guy who's uh, one of the co-sponsors of the fundraiser, uh, he had a company called, he was a co-founder of a company called Western LNG. He currently doesn't have day-to-day responsibilities. So what I was that. told by my staff is that he did not have any responsibility relating to the company. He was not on the board. He was not involved at all in the operation of the company at all. And but if that turns out to be true, then I will not in any way accept his help. But my point of the fact is that the, the point I was told by my staff and we check every single contribution. That's why we don't send we don't list them immediately. We go through every contribution to make sure that we are not accepting money from people we said we wouldn't or we shouldn't. So the clarification, as I said, a co-founder of the company doesn't currently have day to day responsibilities. So, as you said, uh, Mr. Vice President, thank you very much. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.